An Account of Egypt by Herodotus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. Search for me on YouTube if you like ghost and horror stories. An Account of Egypt by Herodotus. When Cyrus had brought his life to an end, Cambyses received the royal power in succession, being the son of Cyrus and of Cassandani, the daughter of Pharnaspes, for whose death, which came about before his own, Cyrus had made great mourning himself, and also had proclaimed to all those over whom he bore rule that they should make mourning for her. Cambyses, I say, being the son of this woman and of Cyrus, regarded the Ionians and Aeolians as slaves inherited from his father, and he proceeded to march an army against Egypt, taking with him as helpers not only other nations of which he was ruler, but also those of the Hellenes over whom he had power besides. Now the Egyptians, before the time when Semeticos became king over them, were wont to suppose that they had come into being first of all men. But since the time when Semeticos, having become king, desired to know what men had come into being first, they supposed that the Phrygians came into being before themselves, but they themselves before all other men. Now Semeticos, when he was not able by inquiry to find out any means of knowing who had come into being first of all men, contrived a device of the following kind. Taking two newborn children belonging to persons of the common sort, he gave them to a shepherd to bring up at the place where his flocks were, with a manner of bringing up such as I shall say, charging him namely that no man should utter any word in their presence, and that they should be placed by themselves in a room where none might come, and at the proper time he should bring them she-goats, and when he had satisfied them with milk, he should do for them whatever else was needed. These things Sermeticos did, and gave him this charge, wishing to hear what word the children would let break forth first after they had ceased from wailings without sense. And accordingly it came to pass, for after a space of two years had gone by, during which the shepherd went on acting so, at length, when he opened the door and entered, both children fell before him in entreaty, and uttered the word Bekos, stretching forth their hands. At first when he heard this the shepherd kept silence, but since this word was often repeated, as he visited them constantly and attended to them, at last he declared the matter to his master, and at his command he brought the children before his face. Then Sametikos, having himself also heard it, began to inquire what nation of men named anything Bekos, and inquiring he found that the Phrygians had this name for bread. In this matter, and guided by an indication such as this, the Egyptians were brought to allow that the Phrygians were a more ancient people than themselves. That so it came to pass, I heard from the priests of that Hephaestos, who dwells at Memphis. That so it came to pass, I heard from the priests of that Hephaestos, who dwells at Memphis. But the Hellenes relate, besides many other idle tales, that Semeticos cut out the tongues of certain women, and then caused the children to live with these women. 
With regard then to the rearing of the children they related so much as I have said, and I heard also other things at Memphis when I had speech with the priests of Hephaestus. Moreover, I visited both Thebes and Heliopolis for this very cause, namely because I wished to know whether the priests at these places would agree in their accounts with those at Memphis, for the men of Heliopolis are said to be the most learned in records of the Egyptians. Those of their narrations which I heard with regard to the gods I am not earnest to relate in full, but I shall name them only because I consider that all men are equally ignorant of these matters, and whatever things of them I may record, I shall record only because I am compelled by the course of the story. But as to those matters which concern men, the priests agreed with one another in saying that the Egyptians were the first of all men on earth to find out the course of the year, having divided the seasons into twelve parts to make up the whole, and this they said they found out from the stars, and they reckoned to this extent more wisely than the Hellenes, as it seems to me, inasmuch as the Hellenes throw in an intercalated month every other year to make the seasons right, whereas the Egyptians, reckoning the twelve months at thirty days each, bring in also every year five days beyond number, and thus the circle of their season is completed and comes round to the same point whence it set out. They said, moreover, that the Egyptians were the first who brought into use appellations for the twelve gods, and the Hellenes took up the use from them, and that they were the first who assigned altars and images and temples to the gods, and who engraved figures on stones and with regard to the greater number of these things they showed me by actual facts that they had happened so. They said also that the first man who became king of Egypt was Min, and that in his time all Egypt except the district of Thebes was a swamp, and none of the regions were then above water which now lie below the lake of Moiris, to which lake it is a voyage of seven days up the river from the sea. And I thought that they said well about the land, for it is manifest in truth even to a person who has not heard it beforehand but has only seen, at least if he have understanding, that the Egypt to which the Hellenes came in ships is a land which has been won by the Egyptians as an addition, and that it is a gift of the river. Moreover, the regions which lie above this lake, also for a distance of three days' sail, about which they did not go on to say anything of this kind, are nevertheless another instance of the same thing, for the nature of the land of Egypt is as follows. First, when you are still approaching it in a ship and are distant a day's run from the land, if you let down a sounding line you will bring up mud and you will find yourself in eleven fathoms. This then so far shows that there is a silting forward of the land. Then, secondly, as to Egypt itself, the extent of it along the sea is sixty scoines, according to our definition of Egypt, as extending from the Gulf of Plinthine to the Serbonian Lake, along which stretches Mount Cassion. From this lake, then, the sixty scoines are reckoned, for those of men who are poor in land have their country measured by fathoms, those who are less poor by furlongs, those who have much land by parasangs, and those who have land in very great abundance by scoines. Now the parasang is equal to thirty furlongs, and each scoine, which is an Egyptian measure, is equal to sixty furlongs. So there would be an extent of three thousand six hundred furlongs for the coastland of Egypt. 
From thence, and as far as Heliopolis inland, Egypt is broad, and the land is all flat and without springs of water and formed of mud. And the road, as one goes inland from the sea to Heliopolis, is about the same in length as that which leads from the altar of the twelve gods at Athens to Pisa, and the temple of Olympian Zeus. Reckoning up, you would find the difference very small by which these roads fail of being equal in length, not more indeed than fifteen furlongs, for the road from Athens to Pisa wants fifteen furlongs of being fifteen hundred, while the road to Heliopolis from the sea reaches that number completely. From Heliopolis, however, as you go up, Egypt is narrow. For on the one side a mountain range belonging to Arabia stretches along by the side of it, going in a direction from the north towards the midday and the south wind, tending upwards without a break to that which is called the Erythraean Sea, in which range are the stone quarries which were used in cutting stone for the pyramids at Memphis. On this side then the mountain ends where I have said, and then takes a turn back, and where it is widest, as I was informed, it is a journey of two months across from east to west, and the borders of it which turn towards the east are said to produce frankincense. Such then is the nature of this mountain range, and on the side of Egypt towards Libya another range extends, rocky and enveloped in sand. In this are the pyramids, and it runs in the same direction as those parts of the Arabian mountains which go towards the midday. So then, I say, from Heliopolis the land has no longer a great extent so far as it belongs to Egypt. And for about four days' sail up the river, Egypt properly so called is narrow, and the space between the mountain ranges which have been mentioned is plain land. But where it is narrowest, it did not seem to me to exceed two hundred furlongs from the Arabian mountains to those which are called the Libyan. After this again, Egypt is broad. Such is the nature of this land, and from Heliopolis to Thebes is a voyage up the river of nine days, and the distance of the journey in furlongs is four thousand eight hundred and sixty, the number of Scoines being eighty-one. If these measures of Egypt in furlongs be put together, the result is as follows. I have already before this shown that the distance along the sea amounts to 3,600 furlongs, and I will now declare what the distance is inland from the sea to Thebes, namely 6,120 furlongs, and again the distance from Thebes to the city called Elephantine is 1,800 furlongs. Of this land, then, concerning which I have spoken, it seemed to myself also, according as the priests said, that the greater part had been won as an addition by the Egyptians, for it was evident to me that the space between the aforesaid mountain ranges, which lie above the city of Memphis, once was a gulf of the sea, like the regions about Ilion and Euthrania and Ephesus and the plains of Myander. If it be permitted to compare small things with great, and small these are in comparison, for of the rivers which heaped up the soil in those regions none is worthy to be compared in volume with a single one of the mouths of the Nile, which has five mouths. Moreover, there are other rivers also, not in size at all equal to the Nile, which have performed great feats, of which I can mention the names of several, and especially the Achilloos, 
which throwing through Acarnania, and so issuing out into the sea, has already made half of the Echinades from islands into mainland. Now there is in the land of Arabia, not far from Egypt, a gulf of the sea running in from that which is called the Erythraean Sea, very long and narrow, as I am about to tell. With respect to the length of the voyage along it, one who set out from the innermost point to sail out through it into the open sea would spend forty days upon the voyage using oars, and with respect to breadth, where the gulf is broadest it is half a day's sail across, and there is in it an ebb and flow of tide every day. Just another gulf, I suppose, that Egypt was, and that the one ran in towards Ethiopia from the northern sea, and the other, the Arabian, of which I am about to speak, tended from the south towards Syria, the gulfs boring in so as almost to meet at their extreme points, and passing by one another with but a small space left between. If then the stream of the Nile should turn aside into this Arabian gulf, what would hinder that gulf from being filled up with silt as the river continued to flow, at all events within a period of twenty thousand years? Indeed, for my part, I am of the opinion that it would be filled up even within ten thousand years. How then, in all the time that has elapsed before I came into being, should not a gulf be filled up even of much greater size than this, by a river so great and so active? As regards Egypt, then, I both believe those who say that things are so, and for myself also I am strongly of opinion that they are so because i have observed that egypt runs out into the sea further than the adjoining land and that shells are found upon the mountains of it and an efflorescence of salt forms upon the surface so that even the pyramids are being eaten away by it and moreover that of all the mountains of egypt the range which lies above memphis is the only one which has sand besides which i notice that egypt resembles neither the land of arabia which borders upon it nor libya nor yet Syria, for they are Syrians who dwell in the parts of Arabia lying along the sea, but that it has soil which is black and easily breaks up, seeing that it is in truth mud and silt brought down from Ethiopia by the river. But the soil of Libya, we know, is reddish in colour and rather sandy, while that of Arabia and Syria is somewhat clayey and rocky. The priests also gave me a strong proof concerning this land as follows, namely that in the reign of King Moiris, whenever the river reached a height of at least eight cubits, it watered Egypt below Memphis, and not yet nine hundred years had gone by since the death of Moiris, when I heard these things from the priests. Now, however, unless the river rises to sixteen cubits, or fifteen at the least, it does not go over the land. I think, too, that those Egyptians who dwell below the lake of Moiris, and especially in that region which is called the Delta, if the land continues to grow in height according to this proportion, and to increase similarly in extent, will suffer for all remaining time from the Nile not overflowing their land, the same thing which they themselves said that the Hellenes would at some time suffer. For hearing that the whole land of the Hellenes had rain, and is not watered by rivers as theirs is, said that the Hellenes would at some time be disappointed of a great hope, and would suffer the ills of famine. 
This saying means that if the gods shall not send them rain, but shall allow drought to prevail for a long time, the Hellenes will be destroyed by hunger, for they have in fact no other supply of water to save them except from Zeus alone. This has been rightly said by the Egyptians with reference to the Hellenes, but now let me tell how matters are with the Egyptians themselves in their turn. If, in accordance with what I before said, their land below Memphis, for this is that which is increasing, shall continue to increase in height according to the same proportion as in the past time. Assuredly, those Egyptians who dwell here will suffer famine, if their land shall not have rain, nor the river be able to go over their fields. It is certain, however, that now they gather in fruit from the earth with less labour than any other men, and also with less than the other Egyptians, for they have no labour in breaking up furrows with a plough, nor in hoeing, nor in any of those labours which other men have about a crop. But when the river has come up of itself, and watered their fields, and after watering has left them again, then each man sows his own field, and turns into it swine, and when he has trodden the seed into the ground by means of the swine, after that he waits for the harvest, and when he has threshed the corn by means of the swine, then he gathers it in. If we desire to follow the opinions of the Ionians as regards Egypt, who say that the delta alone is Egypt, reckoning its sea-coast to be from the watch-tower called of Perseus to the fish-curing houses of Pelusium, a distance of forty scoines, and counting it to extend inland as far as the city of Kirkassaros, where the Nile divides and runs to Pelusium and Canabos, while as for the rest of Egypt, they assign it partly to Libya and partly to Arabia. If, I say, we should follow this account, we should thereby declare that in former times the Egyptian had no land to live in, for as we have seen, their delta at any rate is alluvial, and has appeared, so to speak, lately, as the Egyptians themselves say, and as my opinion is. If then at first there was no land for them to live in, why did they waste their labour to prove that they had come into being before all other men? they needed not to have made trial of the children to see what language they would first utter however i am not of the opinion that the egyptians came into being at the same time as that which is called by the ionians the delta but that they existed always ever since the human race came into being and that as their land advanced forwards many of them were left in their first abodes and many came down gradually to the lower parts at least it is certain that in old times Thebes had the name of Egypt, and of this the circumference measures 6,120 furlongs. If then we judge aright of these matters, the opinion of the Ionians about Egypt is not sound, but if the judgment of the Ionians is right, I declare that neither the Hellenes nor the Ionians themselves know how to reckon, since they say that the whole earth is made up of three divisions, Europe, Asia, and Libya, for they ought to count in addition to these the delta of Egypt, since it belongs neither to Asia nor to Libya. For at least it cannot be the river Nile by this reckoning which divides Asia from Libya, but the Nile is cleft at the point of this delta so as to flow round it, and the result is that this land would come between Asia and Libya. We dismiss then our opinion of the Ionians, and express a judgment of our own on this matter also, 
that Egypt is all that land which is inhabited by Egyptians, just as Kilikia is that which is inhabited by Kilikians, and Assyria that which is inhabited by Assyrians. And we know of no boundary, properly speaking, between Asia and Libya except the borders of Egypt. If, however, we shall adopt the opinion which is commonly held by the Hellenes, we shall suppose that the whole of Egypt, beginning from the cataract and the city of Elephantine, is divided into two parts, and that it thus partakes of both the names, since one side will thus belong to Libya and the other to Asia. For the Nile from the cataract onwards flows to the sea, cutting Egypt through in the midst and as far as the city of Kirkassaros the Nile flows in one single stream, but from this city onwards it is parted into three ways, and one, which is called the Pelusian mouth, turns towards the east. The second of the ways goes towards the west, and this is called the Canobic mouth, but that one of the ways which is straight runs thus. When the river in its course downwards comes to the point of the delta, then it cuts the delta through the midst and so issues out to the sea. In this we have a portion of the water of the river which is not the smallest nor the least famous, and it is called the Sabinitic mouth. There are also two other mouths which part off from the Sabinitic and go to the sea, and these are called, one the Saitic, the other the Mendesian mouth. The Bolbitinitic and Bucolic mouths, on the other hand, are not natural but made by digging. Moreover, also, the answer given by the Oracle of Ammon bears witness in support of my opinion that Egypt is of the extent which I declare it to be in my account, and of this answer I heard after I had formed my own opinion about Egypt. For those of the city of Maria and of Apis, dwelling in the parts of Egypt which border on Libya, being of opinion themselves that they were Libyans and not Egyptians, and also being burdened by the rules of religious service, because they desired not to be debarred from the use of cow's flesh, sent to Ammon, saying that they had naught in common with the Egyptians, for they dwelt outside the delta, and agreed with them in nothing and they said they desired that it might be lawful for them to eat everything without distinction. The god, however, did not permit them to do so, but said that the land was Egypt where the Nile came over and watered, and that those were Egyptians who, dwelling below the city of Elephantine, drank of that river. Thus was it answered to them by the oracle about this, and the Nile, when it is in flood, goes over not only the delta, but also of the land which is called Libyan, and of that which is called Arabian, sometimes as much as two days' journey on each side, and at times even more than this, or at times less. As regards the nature of the river, neither from the priests, nor yet from any other man, was I able to obtain any knowledge, and I was desirous especially to learn from them about these matters namely why the Nile comes down increasing in volume from the summer solstice onwards for a hundred days, and then, when it has reached the number of these days, turns and goes back, failing in its stream, so that through the whole winter season it continues to be low, and until the summer solstice returns. Of none of these things, 
was I able to receive any account from the Egyptians, when I inquired of them what power the Nile has, whereby it is of a nature opposite to that of all other rivers. And I made inquiry, desiring to know both this which I say, and also why, unlike all other rivers, it does not give rise to any breezes blowing from it. However, some of the Hellenes who desired to gain distinction for cleverness have given an account of this water in three different ways. Two of these I do not think it worth while even to speak of, except only to indicate their nature. Of which the one says that the Atesian winds are the cause that makes the river rise by preventing the Nile from flowing out into the sea. But often the Atesian winds fail and yet the Nile does the same work as it is wont to do, and moreover, if these were the cause, all the other rivers also which flow in a direction opposed to the Atesian winds ought to have been affected in the same way as the Nile, and even more, inasmuch as they are smaller and present to them a feebler flow of streams. But there are many of these rivers in Syria, and many also in Libya, and they are affected in no such manner as the Nile. The second way shows more ignorance than that which has been mentioned, and it is more marvellous to tell, for it says that the river produces these effects because it flows from the ocean, and that the ocean flows round the whole earth. The third of the ways is much the most specious, but nevertheless it is the most mistaken of all, for indeed this way has no more truth in it than the rest, alleging, as it does, that the Nile flows from melting snow, whereas it flows out of Libya through the midst of the Ethiopians, and so comes out into Egypt. How then should it flow from snow, when it flows from the hottest parts to those which are cooler? And indeed, most of the facts are such as to convince a man, one at least who is capable of reasoning about such matters, that it is not at all likely that it flows from snow. The first and greatest evidence is afforded by the winds, which blow hot from these regions. The second is that the land is rainless always and without frost, whereas after snow has fallen, rain must necessarily come within five days, so that if it snowed in those parts, rain would fall there. The third evidence is afforded by the people dwelling there who are of a black colour by reason of the burning heat. Moreover, kites and swallows remain there through the year and do not leave the land, and cranes flying from the cold weather which comes on in the region of Scythia come regularly to these parts for wintering. If then it snowed ever so little in that land through which the Nile flows, and in which it has its rise, none of those things would take place, as necessity compels us to admit. As for him who talked about the ocean, he carried his tale into the region of the unknown, and so he need not be refuted, since I for my part know of no river ocean existing. But I think that Homer, or one of the poets who were before him, invented the name and introduced it into his verse.'